Black Bibles or whatever Bible you brought to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5. That is found on page 809, if you're following along in the Bibles provided. 809. We're going to look at Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, and start a new section of our study through Matthew's Gospel. I heard one author, pastor, call it the section we're about to start, that is. Jesus' manifesto for a whole new way to be human that is an inbreaking reality of the kingdom of God, or as it's more oftenly known, the Sermon on the Mount. We'll just refer it to it as the Sermon on the Mount, but I like that title. It's a bit wordy, but Jesus' manifesto for a whole new way to be human, breaking in now the kingdom of God into this present earth. So we're about to study. It's The most commented portion of Scripture over the last 2,000 years compared to any other Scripture. More commentaries, more books, more articles, more sermons on these two chapters of the Bible. Three chapters, 5, 6, and 7, than any other section of Scripture in the last 2,000 years. Which means there's no chance that any of you and I can exhaust all that has been said and studied and pondered about this text. One author I read this week who wrote a whole new commentary on it, it's been very helpful, he said that this sermon, these three chapters, are a litmus test on really how you understand all of the Bible and Jesus himself. If you get the Sermon on the Mount, then you're going to get Jesus. You're going to get Christianity. And depending on some of your views of Christianity or the Bible, they will be reflected by how you interpret the Sermon on the Mount because so many key issues are brought up in this manifesto. For example, we're going to look at in coming weeks, what role does the Old Testament have for Christians today? The whole sermon in one sense could be seen as your view of ethics, what place do virtue have in that? Your understanding of this sermon will reveal whether or not you are a virtue ethicist or not. What is the relationship between faith and works? What is the relationship between Paul and his teaching and the rest of the New Testament and Jesus and the Gospels? What's your view of the end times? Eschatology is the more proper term. Where do you think the world is going? Is it even going anywhere or is it cyclical, like a big cycle. It's just repeating over and over again. Seasons come and go, as the author of Ecclesiastes says. Or is the world going somewhere, and does the Sermon on the Mount, your view of it, shape that view of those times? How about your view of God, how you pray to Him, how you communicate with Him? Or the role of suffering in the life of the Christian? That's just a few big issues that in the coming weeks and months, if you make a commitment to be at embassy, Lord willing, over the several weeks and months, these are the issues that we will dive into and address. They're theological, they're pastoral, they're practical. Everyday kind of issues are going to come up about how you talk, how you interact with people, your marriage, your relationships with God, etc. So I invite you to come. I invite you to return next week. I invite you to study on your own. 
pick up another book that I will not have time because there's thousands of them that I will not be able to read on the Sermon on the Mount. Let's dialogue together as a community. Let's be challenged in the way we think and the way we live. And let's, in all of this, be amazed at the one who's speaking it. Follow along as I read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. One of the more helpful pictures I got was from a pastor named Tim Mackey. He preached on this passage, and he says, you know, the Beatitudes, that's this section I just read to you. You have that title probably in the Bible in front of you, the Beatitudes. It's from a Latin word, by the way, that translates the word blessed that you see repeated. So if you all knew Latin, you'd be like, oh yeah, Beatitudes, blessed. But that's what that means. These Beatitudes, these opening introduction to this most famous sermon of Jesus is like a stained glass window. And unfortunately, I don't have one to point to here, but there are some in the lobby just down the hall. If you want to exit out that way today and look around the lobby, they have used the old stained glass that was in this current location of the Methodist church. This church is over 150 years old. It's one of the oldest churches in the area, and the original location was right here. And they renovated the place, and it doesn't look 150 years, does it? Uh, But they took the old stained glass, and they've used it as decoration in the lobby out there. So if you have no idea what I'm talking about, go see, and it'll all come together at the end of the service. But stained glass is artwork, and there's a lot of several smaller pieces that are putting together a bigger picture. And and I think that that is helpful because a lot of times when we look at these first 12 verses, there's many ways that it has been taught on that I think is not as helpful as others. And hopefully what we'll do is see it as individual parts. When you step back, sees a bigger picture, and I want to work through it in that manner. So here's the outline for this message. If This first portion is the stained glass window for which we should see, I think, all of the rest of the sermon. You look through this stained glass and see the picture that sheds light on all of it. I want to first consider the frame of the stained glass window of these first 12 verses in the whole sermon. So we're going to first consider the frame. Second, I want us to look at the individual pieces, these beatitudes, each little one, the blesseds. And thirdly, I want us to step back, and I want us to see, is there a picture that's forming when you put all of the pieces together, and what do you see? I think it's beautiful. It's an amazing piece of art, and it comes from Jesus himself. Let's start, number one, with the frame. 
What's the frame of this stained glass window? Well, it's the, the context, the context of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. And it really begins in chapter 4. So most times I feel that even commentators do a poor job at showing that there, there's no break here in the original reading and writing of Matthew. So if you're reading chapter 4, you're going to look at verse 23, and you're going to see what is one of the more important summary statements that's going to be repeated elsewhere in Matthew. So at different points, Matthew's going to kind of summarize what Jesus is doing. And look at the way he does it in verse 23 of chapter 4. And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, don't stop there. Keep reading and notice seeing the crowds. What crowds? Well, the ones he was just talking about. There's, there's no chapter break. Just keep the thought going. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, he, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them. And then the sermon begins. Now, why is that helpful for us to point out the frame? Because it's what's going to hold the whole picture together that we're looking at today. It's the structure of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the structure of the Beatitudes. What you notice in this little introductory summary statement of chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, what did I read? What was Jesus doing? Preaching and teaching, right? There's, there's the first declaration summary statement. Summarize it with one word, word. He's speaking, What's the second half of it? He's serving through healing. So what you should find, if this is a summary statement, is a section of Jesus speaking, and then a section of him healing. Not just in that little summary part, but in the next sections of Matthew's gospel. So what do you find in chapter 5, 6, and 7? Jesus speaking. And then what do you find in chapters 8 and 9? Look over in chapters 8 and 9. Just briefly glance at them, peruse The top headings, chapter 8, Jesus cleanses a leper. Next section, the faith of the centurion who then got healing. Jesus heals many after that. Then the cost of following Jesus. Then the miracle of calming a storm. Then Jesus healing two men with demons. Then Jesus hearing a paralytic at the beginning of chapter 9. Jesus calling Matthew. Then questions about fasting. And then what do we have again? A girl restored to life and a woman healed. Jesus healing two blind men, healing a man who is unable to speak. Harbors, the harvest is plentiful, the labors are few. And then you have a new section in chapter 10. Do you see the flow here? Five, six, and seven, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to speak and teach. Then eight and nine, Jesus is going to heal. And Matthew is giving us that introduction in chapter 4. So this is setting the framework of this sermon. Second piece of frame that we need to look at. Look at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and then he sat down. It's funny, isn't it, that Jesus sat down to teach, and I'm standing and you're all sitting. What's that about, right? Are we not as biblical? Are we not following Jesus' example? Should I just take a seat? No, it's all just because this was traditional, customary respect for a teacher, a rabbi, somebody who had high authority. 
he would sit in a place of honor, and then everybody else would stand to honor his presence. So apparently I'm not that honorable, but that's okay. It's really since the last 500 years of the modern Protestant Reformation that sermons got longer, and people had shorter teachings. And, I mean, longer teachings, shorter back then. And so instead of the teacher sitting and saying a short teaching, and then everybody leaving, uh, it just kind of flip-flopped. And so now you all sit, and I stand, and I'm fine standing. So that's not the main thing I wanted to point out, though. The main thing I wanted to point out is that Jesus went up on a mountain. The sitting thing is kind of like a fun fact, whatever. That's what it was like in the first century. It's, it's not weird. It's normal to them. The point that you should notice is the way that chapter 5, verse 1 says he went up on the mountain and sat down. And then flip two pages over, or however many pages in your Bible, to the end of chapter 7. And notice the frame of the whole sermon. Matthew wants to let you know that Jesus is on a mount, a hill. It, it could just be a big hill, by the way. Don't think a big, large mountain, Mount Everest or you know, Mount Sinai or something like that. Verse 28 of chapter 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Verse 1 of chapter 8. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Do you see the bookends of mountain going up and sitting down on the mountain, coming down, and great crowds are now following Jesus. The people are amazed. He is not teaching and saying something like, oh yeah, we've heard that one before. We can just move on our way. This teaching is explosive. It is life-changing. It's transformative. It is unlike what they would have heard in their day, and it is unlike anything that you will hear in our day. And so that's why I challenge you to keep coming week in and week out and hear this whole message taught bit by bit. But what should you be thinking when you hear this phrase, going up and coming down a mountain? Going up, coming down a mountain. If you've been reading Matthew's gospel, you didn't start in Matthew chapter 5 verse 1, true? Is that a good observation? All of us are on the same page here? You would have started in Matthew 1 verse 1. And there's really a great case that I think can be made about seeing Matthew organizing and pointing out details that are different than even the other Gospels to show you that Jesus is the new representative of the nation of Israel. In other words, he's another Moses-like figure or another David-like figure, another Abrahamic-like figure. There's different periods of the history of Israel where there's one key person who is representing and speaking on behalf of all of the nation of Israel. Jesus now is all of those people, and I believe Matthew's gospel starts in verse 1 of chapter 1 by saying the genealogy of Jesus or the genesis of Jesus and quoting a phrase from the very first lines of Scripture in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. That's how Matthew 1.1 starts, the genealogy of Jesus. It's a Greek translation of the first lines of the Bible. So if you're reading that and you know your Old Testament, you should be thinking Genesis. And then the next phrase you see is that he is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then there's this long genealogical list, and it summarizes really the whole history of Israel. And it seems like a boring way to introduce the book, but it's actually powerful to hear the, the words be read and, and see how it's taking you through the whole scope of Israel's history. And it's a really faithful introduction to the whole book because that's, in fact, how the rest of the book continues to highlight things. So, say, for example, 
When James got up here and read Luke chapter 6, he was reading an, another version of the Sermon on the Mount. He was reading the, another version of the Beatitudes. Did you all notice that it was not the exact same as what I just read? In fact, if you go back to Luke 6, you'll see that it says, Now Jesus was standing on a flat plain, not a mountain. And this sometimes causes some people, maybe some of you right now, to be, what? The Bible contradicts itself. Oh, throw this away. I'm leaving. I'm out. I'm done with Christianity. I just can't deal with these inconsistencies. Was he on a mountain or was he on a plain? Was he on a hillside or what? What's the real answer here? Now, I have taught at this church a whole slew of teachings through the book of Galatians last summer. Many of you might remember that. Started in the summer, went into the fall. And guess what I did? I went to Dubai, and I then taught in Dubai that same teaching to a bunch of college students in Dubai. In other words, almost any pastor or teacher prepares something, has a teaching, and then will sometimes use that same material and do it in a different context. Do you know what Jesus did all throughout his ministry? Teach something in one place, and then he was called what we would say an itinerant preacher, a traveling preacher. He went to another location. And if he had a good sermon, I bet he's like, I'm going to do that one again, right? And so this Sermon on the Mount is a good sermon. And so we should expect that he gave this message not just once, not just twice, but probably dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Which then begs the question, if he did it in the plain or if he did it on a mountain, why is Matthew telling us about the mountain one, the hillside one, does that have any agenda that he's trying to give us about the whole context and framework of the Sermon on the Mount? And my answer would be yes, because of what he's done throughout the first four chapters. In other words, think about these parallels. We said verse 1 of chapter 1 is the book of Genesis being alluded to. Then the sons of Abraham and the genealogy. Then in chapter 1, Joseph, Jesus' uh, stepfather, if you want to call him that, he had a dream, which reminds us of another Joseph dreamer in the end of the book of Genesis. Then chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, has Magi coming to visit the baby Jesus. And this is very similar to the nations going to Egypt for Joseph in the story of Exodus at the end of the book of Genesis. And then we have the, the parallel between Herod killing and slaughtering a bunch of children Read Exodus chapter 1 and 2, and you will see this Moses parallel with the killing of children. The fleeing and rescuing of Jesus is similar to Moses fleeing and rescuing. Then there's an announcement of judgment from John the Baptist. There's going to be an announcement of Moses and Aaron bringing judgment on Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Then Jesus is going to pass through the waters of baptism. Does that sound familiar? Well, in the same way, the whole Exodus story is about them splitting the waters and getting free on dry ground to the other side. Through the waters to the other side, a nation is formed and set free. And then they go up on top of a mountain and a new law is given as Moses goes on top of the mountain, gets the Ten Commandments, and goes down. In other words, it's not just one or two. It's almost the whole first five chapters is telling you Genesis, Exodus. And it's telling you that Jesus is fulfilling all that happened. And Matthew, I think, is telling you that Jesus sat on a hillside or a mountain, not just as a little fun fact or because he's biographically trying to get the details precise. It's because he has a theological point. And you shouldn't pass over it. You should see that it's holding the whole point of his book together. And therefore, if we miss this point, we might miss the whole Sermon on the Mount. 
We might miss the whole idea of Jesus establishing a new covenant like Moses did. Do you realize when Moses went on top of the mountain, because at this point, I'm assuming some of you might be like, okay, what does that matter? Like, who cares? That sounds fun if you're like a big Bible geek like you, Pastor Phil. You're like, oh, cool, look at the connections. But it, it does matter. If you're reading the Sermon on the Mount and you're seeing that Jesus is going up on a mountain and he is being the new Moses, then that means what did Moses do back in the Old Testament? He got God's law in Revelation. He set it before his people and they had a new covenant be established, the the covenant of Mount Sinai. Therefore, Jesus is establishing the new covenant document, not the Ten Commandments, but the Sermon on the Mount. This now is to be our manifesto for how we're to live in the same way that the Ten Commandments were to be the example for how Israel was to live. And on an everyday level, this should be very helpful for you and me to realize that this now new way to be Israel is the new way for us to be humans. And therefore, when Jesus is going to talk about the nitty-gritty details of your life, you need to ask yourself, how are you living as a human? Do you believe that this new way that Jesus is teaching is better and best? Or do you think that your way, mixed in with a little bit of Jesus, is the right way to live? You know, we can pick and choose. Or do you read these commands, these sermon points as, I'm going to submit my life and bow down and follow all of them. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you don't follow Jesus, that's essentially what it means to not be a Christian. You're not saying, I'm going to follow the ways of Jesus as best for my life. That's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, is a Christian says, I need to receive God's grace and forgiveness because I have messed it up and I need a better way to live. And oh, By God's grace, he has given it to us in Jesus. He has lived it and demonstrated it, but then he's even taught us in these lengthy descriptions of how to live. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, could it be that you, like so many people, want the benefits of the goodness of God's world, but you don't want the king who is giving them to you? Think about how nonsensical that is. Consider for a moment how many people here in the Western American world want individuality. They want freedom of rights, that each of us are humans, that each of us should be treated with dignity and respect. Could you imagine anybody in America really kind of balking at that idea and thinking, no, I think we should just treat people like slaves and masters and we should go back to racism and like in general, isn't, isn't the general theme of like, no, we as Americans who live in this time and day, we appreciate this idea of individual rights for every human. It's like part of our constitution. So you're supposed to say, yes, that's what we do. Where did that idea come from? This idea that you should be treated with dignity and respect from our founding fathers. Well, where did they get that idea from? They got it from God, from the Bible. And this is one of many examples of the way people in the world today, they want the benefits of the teaching of Christianity and Jesus' kingdom, but they don't want to bow to the king. And I want to encourage all of you, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, whether you're following it, the big picture idea is that as Jesus gets on top of the mountain, he is getting revelation from God himself. He is then speaking as God himself. He is telling you, this is the way that I created you to live. Do you want to live like that? Do you see this as best? That's the big why this matters point for us. And that's the frame that sets up the whole Sermon on the Mount. 
And then now I think we can now move into the pieces of these first 12 verses. So let's look at them, starting in verse 3 all the way to verse 12. And as you do so, one of the things you're going to notice right away is a difference in tense. Notice verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Present tense, right now, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then you're going to see a pattern of future tense. Verse 4 and following, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall in the future be comforted. And that pattern repeats all the way until the end, until eventually you get to blessed are those who are persecuted. Verse 10, for theirs is now, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the Beatitudes are bookended with present, present, and then all in between is future tense in the way it's written. Does that matter? Is it significant? I think one thing for sure is that these Beatitudes help us understand the whole big picture of where we are now and where we're going. That phrase I used earlier, eschatology. How do we make sense of the world? And how we should make sense of the world is that Matthew chapter 4 has already happened, verse 17 in particular. If you look at 4.17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Present tense, the kingdom of heaven is here, therefore the blessings and the king of the kingdom, they're here now, and therefore you can start receiving those benefits and blessings now. Are they all here? Is everyone bowing before the king? Does the whole earth look like the kingdom of Jesus fully and completely? Is everybody who's mourning getting comforted in the best possible way? So there is an already now reality of these beatitudes, and there's an already now reality of these commandments, and then there's a future reality of the beatitudes, and a future reality of the commandments that are to come in the Sermon on the Mount. This concept will really help you make sense of a lot of the, I'd say, bad ways to read the Sermon on the Mount. For example, some may have been in this room, maybe you've been taught this way. There's plenty of literature out there, as I've mentioned. The Sermon on the Mount is just, you cannot obey it. It's such a high standard that no one could ever live this way. And I would say, false. Already now, there is the inbreaking of God's kingdom on this earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. Will you do it perfectly, completely? No, 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 we're not saying that. But yes, you should start to live more and more like the Sermon on the Mount. To deny that is to deny the power of God's Spirit. To deny that is to deny Jesus' phrase that the kingdom is at hand now. And so that's why there's an already now, even the benefits of the kingdom come now, present tense. The rewards and the blessings of the kingdom are now. But they're not fully here yet, so therefore many of us are still fighting and struggling with sins and struggles and temptations. We're not there yet. The, the kingdom is not fully arrived, but it has been broken into this present reality. Another thing I think we need to clarify is that the Beatitudes in particular are not commands. Too many times I think they're seen as virtue commands that we should read and be like, oh, we should be like that. And as we go through them piece by piece and see the picture that's being portrayed for us, 
I want to challenge you to see them as the statement of what is, the state of blessedness, the favor that God is pouring out on people who are in these conditions because this is the kind of people, the citizens, that will be living in the kingdom of heaven now already. And it's not supposed to be to read it and say, blessed are the poor in spirit. So, okay, let me try and be really poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Okay, so I'm supposed to cry a lot. Criers are good, faithful Christians. If you're not crying enough, then you're just probably not a good spiritual person. Blessed are those who are meek, so I should pursue meekness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you could read them, and it's easy to understand why people would read them this way. But I want to suggest a different way, that they're not isolated as commands or virtues for us to pursue, but rather statements about here's when God's kingdom comes onto this earth. These are the kind of people that will be a part of that. These are the in crowd. Who's really in the kingdom of heaven? Who are those that God calls his children? Who are those that God sets his affection and love on? Everywhere in the world, there are the in crowd and the out crowd, right? Well, here's Jesus' list of the in crowd. And so let's start with the first one. Poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven now. If you remember Luke chapter 6, he actually says the version of the Beatitudes this way. Blessed are the poor. It doesn't say poor in spirit. And then there's all these debates and discussions. Is it originally poor? Just economically poor? Materially poor? And then Matthew kind of spiritualizes it a little bit and says, no, it's blessed are those who are poor in their spirit. It's more just internal. And let me just say that my view on that little debate is that it's a silly debate. If you were not living in the day that you live now, you would not see a dichotomy between those two ideas. The material world and the land that they lived on was very much a part of their spiritual prosperity. Read the whole Old Testament, see the focus and the significance of the land, and you'll notice that if the land is producing a harvest and it's going well, then they were sensing God's blessing and so they were spiritually full. There's not this difference between spiritually poor and economic poor. It's like, stop it. Stop doing that. You're so Western, you know? Get Middle Eastern in your mind and and get in your mind the first century audience of these Jewish people. Blessed are those who are broken and poor, both in their spirit and in their life. How often is it that you are spiritually poor and bankrupt, not because you read the Bible so faithfully and realized, well, in my relationship with God, I'm just, I'm a nobody, I'm a nothing, I'm spiritually poor. But how is it that most of us are spiritually poor when the life all around us starts falling apart. Isn't that true? Isn't it true when you lose your job, you start to feel really down and discouraged? When cancer comes, when bills from the hospital start piling up, when economically things get tough, you start to find, I'm struggling. That's who we're talking about. Let's not create a big divide between those two ideas. And then the second one, notice those who mourn. Wouldn't it be weird if we treated this like a command, like I was kind of alluding to earlier? Blessed are those who mourn, who cry a lot. So we should then go cry. That's your one command today. Go cry some more. Rather, this phrase, I think, is a direct correlation to the scripture reading earlier in Isaiah 61. 
It's a mourning over the state of Israel. It's a mourning over the place of exile that God's people were in. If you read Isaiah 61 and you know the story of Israel, they had a down time. And so they're spiritually and economically poor. And they're crying and they're mourning and they're defeated and they're broken. Babylon just came and destroyed all of their temple and their homes and deported them out. Could you imagine somebody coming to the States and they're living here and then they get deported? It's like, I'm down, I'm discouraged, I have no home, I have nowhere to go. Picture that. That's what they're talking about here. People who are poor and mourning and they are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They're meek. Meek is the word for being weak and oppressed. You have strength, but you are unable to use that strength. You have the ability and capability to doing things, but because of the structures and systems and people around you, you can't be all that you are. You're unimportant. You're seen as nothing. You're seen as insignificant. This has been the state of Israel before Jesus comes. There's systems and structures around them, and they're meek. They're unimportant. They're nothing. They're not being asked for how to take care of the Roman government. They're being oppressed and they're being downtrodden. And so that's why the hunger and thirsting makes a lot of sense. We look at it as, oh, a virtue. Yeah, I'm, I'm hungry for righteousness. Really think about it for a moment. Who's hungry for righteousness? Not, not you right now, but what kind of people are the people that are hungering for righteousness? Like in a dry and weary land where there is no water and their, their mouth is parched and they're just starving for righteousness. Answer? People who are surrounded by injustice. People who are surrounded by unrighteousness. That's when you hunger for righteousness. When all the world around you is chaos, you're like, God, we just so badly want you to come. Bring that day that you promised to make all things right. That's what righteousness is. To make all things right with God and humanity. Make God's promises right. To do good on his promises. God, do that. I'm, I'm so hungry for it because I look around and all I see is evil and injustice and corruption. And we're getting oppressed and abused and we're mourning and we're crying. Do, do you get the sense now of who Jesus is talking about? One of the easy ways to think about this is the frame again. The pieces and the frame are one big piece of art. And if you go back to chapter 4, who are the crowds that Jesus is talking to? Sick, poor, broken, epileptic, all kinds of diseases, the people that are unimportant, the people that are being downtrodden and having no significance in the world, that's the kind of people that are in the crowds and Jesus looks to his disciples and he says, blessed are they who are poor, who are broken, who are feeling and experiencing all of the evils and pains and injustices in the world. When you look at the first four, in the light of the frame and the context, and each piece, not just being one isolated piece, but putting together a whole picture for us, you start to see, I think, a picture of the internal longing that happens for people that are experiencing the pains of this world. The second half paints a picture, I think, of the external relationships of when people are trying to live in this world and it doesn't go well. The one that doesn't make as well of a sense is the pure in heart, but I'd put it this way. When you look at the last four ideas in the Beatitudes, and by the way, the reason I'm categorizing it this way is because if you were to do it this way and say there's two sets of four, 
you would see the exact number of words on the first half of four as a second. So it's like a complete, uh, perfect parallel of word count. Now, that could be a weird coincidence, or if you read the Old Testament, if you find yourself to be in Jewish literature, you find they do that kind of stuff all the time. They're trying to show you the structure of the actual literature by adding up the words and saying, okay, here's the first part and here's the second part. So I would put the first four ideas, poor in spirit, mourning, meeking, and hungering, and thirsting for righteousness, as the first kind of internal longing for God to come and deliver them from this weak position they're in. Look at this next set of four. The external relationships. First, who are the kind of people that are being merciful Well, if you're being merciful to someone, it's because you see others who are hurting and you're going out and you're reaching your hand to help those. Blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are those who are reaching out and helping those who are hurting. So again, the context is one of people that are struggling and hurting. Drop down to the third one of this next set, the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. What is a peacemaker? There's somebody that's not getting along with somebody else. And you're the middle person, the intercessor, the one that's coming and saying, guys, let's get along. Is that a fun job, anybody? You ever experienced trying to be a peacemaker? Let's say mom and dad. Let's say brother and sister. Let's say your friend and another friend, and you love both of them too much, and they don't love each other, and they're hating each other, and they're hurting one another. You're like, guys, I love you too much. I want to try. Let's get this right. Anyone like being in that situation? Yeah, let's pursue being a peacemaker. Let's, that's a wonderful place to be, isn't it? Do you see how countercultural and how upside down and counterintuitive all of these beatitudes are? Sparks start flying when you try and get people that are at odds with one another back together again. It's not a fun place to be. Look at the last one. Blessed are those who when they try and for righteousness' sake extend the kingdom of God, they're rejected, they're reviled, they're persecuted. So the only one left is pure in spirit, pure in heart. And again, that one seems more internal, but I'd put it this way. When you're doing these things, being merciful, being a peacemaker, you're being rejected, but you don't do it because of your status with other people. You're not trying to get recognition. You have a pure heart. You're not trying to gain favor. So in all of your external realities of of these relationships, this is what you look like. And this is the context that Jesus finds himself in when he says, blessed then are these people. Now think about what we just went through and compare this list to a list that came just before the time of Jesus, 150 BC, not just before, but you know, in the time of Jesus. And here's a well-known Jewish scholar. This would have been a well-known teaching. And this is what he says about the blessed, the, the in crowd. He says, there are nine who I would call blessed and a tenth that my tongue will proclaim. Blessed is the man who can rejoice in his children. Blessed is the man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. Blessed is the one who does not sin with his tongue Blessed is the one who does not serve any inferiors. Blessed is the one who finds a friend. Blessed is the one who speaks to attentive listeners. Greatest is the one who finds wisdom. And none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. 
This is the kind of thing that would have been around in the days of Jesus. There's like so many of these, by the way. I just picked one of them. These different statements that Jewish scholars and teachers would have put out there about here's what the person who is finding favor with God and living a blessed life, this is what it's like. They can rejoice because they got a lot of healthy children. Blessed is the man who can see the downfall of his foes. They're victorious. Everything goes right. They win the job. They win that account. They get all of the things that they want because they're more powerful and successful. Blessed is the one who does not sin with his tongue. Man, he speaks so well. Blessed is the one who does not serve an inferior. He does not look up to anybody. He's like the boss. He runs his own hours. Nobody tells him what to do. Blessed is the one who finds a friend. Oh, he is the life of a party. He has attentive listeners, it says. So when he speaks, people listen. And everyone thinks he has great wisdom. You see how different Jesus' list compares to the thinking of 150 years before he comes onto the scene? My guess is we wouldn't come up with a two different list in our world today. You ask a person on the street, what's the blessed life? What's the life that God's blessed and has favor on? It'd probably sound a lot like Ben Sirach, the Jewish scholar of 150 BC. Jesus is redefining who is in the in crowd, who is blessed, who is favorable. So I wanted to take the opportunity now and say, what would it sound like in 2018 for Jesus to come up? And this is not Phil's translation. This is my application to you all. This is an artistic, poetic way of thinking about the Beatitudes here and now in our language. Blessed are the down and out, the unemployed, the underemployed, those without a college degree, those without health insurance, who have little to offer because they are in the kingdom of God. Blessed are the sad, the depressed, those grieving the death of a loved one, the failure of a marriage, the other miscarriage, those who are hurting in pain because of the racism of our nation, the injustice all around them, because one day God himself will come and wipe away every tear from their eye. Blessed are those who are quiet and shy. Maybe they feel socially awkward or uncool, not as well-dressed as others, those that have five followers on Facebook or Twitter. One day they will be free from the tyranny of what others think of them and they will be a king and queen with Jesus over God's world. Blessed are the messed up, those who can't get it together, the addict, the mentally unstable, the overweight, those from an abusive home. For one day, they will be so full of God's life, they will not know where to put all of their riches. Blessed is the little guy, the people who get stomped on and passed over. They don't fight back violence with violence, and one day they will hit mercy backed with interest. And finally, blessed are all the Christians who are living in a world who hates Christianity, that is hostile to all that we believe and think, even though we are made fun of, even though that we are looked down upon as stupid and as ignorant and behind the times, blessed are those who get to share in the cross-shaped life of Jesus and receive the kingdom of God here, now, and in the future. Friends, these are the kind of people that enter into the kingdom of heaven by faith in their God who rescues and redeems alone. 
And the reason why these kind of people are in the in crowd is because when you step back and you get to our final little point, you start to see the picture of the stained glass window and you start to see, I think, a face. So put them all together, every little piece of the Beatitudes, and start thinking, does that not sound like somebody you've heard of before? Do you know anybody who has hungered and thirsted for righteousness that even though he was unimportant in the world's eyes, he was committed to the very end of bringing about righteousness here on the earth? Do you know anyone that was economically poor and poured out all of his spirit and said, I commit my soul to you, God, and make myself spiritually empty that I have nothing else to give? Do you know anyone that wept and mourned over the state of Jerusalem in particular and the evil of the world as a whole? Can you see someone now as you start putting the Beatitudes together that was not looking for the praise of men? He was meek. He did things with the right motives. He was pure. He cared only about seeing God and being with him even if no one else understood him. Can you start seeing someone who has been committed from the very moment he stepped on earth to peacemaking and reconciliation and that he hates seeing God and humanity at odds with one another and so therefore he's going to do whatever it takes even if sparks fly and he has to take the hit. And so do you see someone who gave all of his life, his soul, and his being to all of these purposes to embody all of these beatitudes And by doing so, by being this kind of person, he was rejected and reviled and persecuted and died hanging on a cross for sinners like you and me. I believe when you step back from the Beatitudes and you look through the stained glass window, you'll see the whole Sermon on the Mount is pointing us to the glories of a God of grace named Jesus. And if you're wondering how do we put together the Apostle Paul's teaching of justification by faith alone and grace alone, not apart, not by our works, but apart from the works of the law, only because of Jesus. I think you get it right from the very first start of the Sermon on the Mount in one of Jesus' most famous teaching. Who should be included in the kingdom of heaven? Who are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Those who got their act together? Those who worked hard enough? Those who obeyed the Ten Commandments? No, my friends. We are justified and made right and brought to peace with God because there was one who was the fully blessed one and gave it all up to be cursed and hung on a tree so that we could receive this blessing here and now in this kingdom. Here and now. There's no confusion between Paul's gospel of justification by faith and Jesus' message of all who are empty and broken and weary and tired and hurting and sinful. I've come for you. He invites all of us who do not matter, who think that we are nothing, that we can have everything now and in the life to come through Jesus Christ, It's such a compelling picture, isn't it? When you see all of the stained glass pieces put together, it's beautiful. I think it's hard for us to take our eyes off of it once you see it. 
And my hope and prayer is this week, that's all you want to do is just look and look and see the beauty of the blessed one, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for Jesus. The beauty of his face that we can see through the word of God, the God become flesh, embodying the Beatitudes, embodying these characteristics. God, we know that we are not always pure in heart. We know that we are not always mourning over the hurting and broken in this world, but we numb ourselves to the pain of the news with addictions to technology and entertainment, to just get a break from the onslaught of injustice and evil and corruption in this world. And so, God, we are thankful that we can embrace being those kind of people and that wherever we find ourselves, whether we're already there now and we're feeling we're, we're stuck in a pit, we're down into the darkness, that you call us as you have throughout this whole service, come as you are. There is no hurting that heaven can't heal. Come as you are, oh, come to the altar. You've, you've called us, God, and I pray that we would come now. As we take the bread and the cup, God, I pray that you will lead us by your spirit to receive the grace, to feast at the table and taste it. We thank you that Jesus did all of this on our behalf and became the one that we should be and lived the human life that all of us should aspire to. I pray, God, that you will change our hearts by this beautiful vision of his life, death, burial, resurrection, his ascension to continually live on our behalf for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.